on languages. And here's the idea. So last year I did the Humane Arts Lecture Series, which was a notion that throughout history, this shared quality of human existence has produced art, uh, literature, architecture, all the things that we tend to love, music, in abundance. Um, how do you access that abundance? This is something I started thinking about. I mean, we're in the inheritors of unbelievable cultural riches. The written history of mankind goes back over 5,000 years. I mean, that is, that is a pretty good history. This is just a writing, of course, architecture's cave painting goes back even further. But if we, if we focus on writing, it goes back a little over 5,000 years. And so I thought one way to look at this is to look at the civilizations by language group. Um, part of this idea, idea came to me by, by a guy called Ostler, who wrote a book called Empire of the Words, a very good book if you're interested in this kind of thing. He looked at the language groups in a different way, but th this is a similar idea. Because if you think about something like we talk about Imperial Rome or, or Rome, and we think of Latin, Rome falls, or at least the Western Empire falls, in 400 AD, give or take. If you went to Europe a thousand years later, the primary language spoken by educated people was Latin. The government institutions were based on Roman models. So while the political empire, which is how we tend to think about history as a, as a series of political entities, and then they live or die, and then history changes dramatically, which is not that that's wrong, but that is one way. To, if you look at the linguistic history, what you find is, is a culture like the Latin, Latinate Rome, it just went on and on and on. I mean, it just kept influencing us pretty much until this day, but even just the, the language itself was continued to be spoken for over a thousand years later. And so I thought of organizing uh, the lecture series in this way so that we could look at civilizations and their influence by language group try and get a sense of the history of how those languages developed and their major literature, some of the works that we might want to look at to get a sense of them, and then discuss, you know, where are we today? How have they influenced us down to the modern world, right? Because most of these have. Um, even the dead ones, as we'll see for this evening, um, but certainly the living ones. So that's the idea. And I figured, well, if we're going to do that, let's start at the beginning, because the oldest known language is cuneiform. It's the cuneiform languages of Sumerian, Babylonian, and Akkadian. Akkadian is associated with the Assyrian Empire. So if you look at the map there on the front, this will give you an idea of the region. So you can see Sumer is sort of over there towards the Persian Gulf on the, on the right. Um, uh, Babylonian or Old Babylonian, uh, obviously there's Babylon. This just, that's just modern-day Baghdad, give or take a couple of miles, which is, we'll mention that in a, in a moment. And then uh, Nineveh and Assur, which you see up there where it says Assyria, those were um, important cities in, in the Assyrian Empire. Um, and then the region that circled, sort of grade region, that's the extent of basically the, the region of influence. The Assyrian Empire at its, at its largest moment actually reached all the way over into Egypt. But basically this is a, a good snapshot of where most of the political action took place. All the wars, the battles, the living, the dying, the killing. Uh, but um, So if you read a political history, you know, you have the Hittites and the Elamites and all these names and everybody's fighting the whole time, but the dominant script, the primary script was Cuneiform, and the Cuneiform language was developed by the Sumerians. And that influence ran from 3300 <coughs> BC, 3300 BC, 
And it stopped being used as an active political language around 100 AD. So it was used for a little over 4,000 years. I mean, 3,000 years, a little over 3,000 years, which is a pretty good run for a script. What really brought cuneiform writing to an end was the development of the alphabet. And we'll talk about why that is in a second. So that's the general area that we're going to cover. Uh, and the time frame, again, is roughly 3300 BC when we get our first evidence of the existence of cuneiform to 100 AD when cuneiform writing finally dies, withers on the line and dies. Right. Amazing story. So I, I, love, I love conspiracy theories. I, I sort of find them fascinating for any number of reasons. I think they're very uh, enlightening about the ways people think about things. I mean, I think they're wrong, but they do enlighten us about how people view the world. And there's a whole set of conspiracy people who say that there was some ancient civilization, whether it was in Atlantis or whether it was some ancient Mayan civilization or it was the North Pole or South Pole. Anyway, there was some ancient civilization that's been lost and buried and archaeologists are lying to us. All the evidence is always being obscured and the sites are being locked up. And this happens over and over and over again. It's, it's been a sort of great game. The amazing thing is that this precise idea of there being an ancient civilization that we knew nothing about, it, it, it occurred. It was the Sumerian civilization. It had been completely and totally lost to history for thousands and thousands of years, probably 4,000 years. No one, no one knew about the existence of the Sumerian Empire. But of course, it's not the archaeologists who are obscuring it, it's the archaeologists who found it and were like, holy cow, what does this mean? But we'll, we'll talk about it, it's important. If you talk to somebody, the most educated archaeologists, philologists, world historians, world travelers in 1850, and said, well, what civilization predated the Babylonians? They would say, well, no one. That's it, that's the origins. The Babylonians that's, gets everything rolling. This is not true. Turns out that at a site called in Nineveh, if you look at your, your chart, it's actually on there. An extraordinary discovery was made by a guy called Rollison. And in the great tradition of professional archaeologists, he was not a professional archaeologist and he was trying to ditch out on work. <laughs> so it turns out that he, he was not an archaeologist, not trained in any way. But his parents wanted him to work in sort of a family firm, and he said, I didn't want to do that. And they said, well, go to, I think it was to India, yeah, and work in your, in your uncle's firm. He's like, ah, okay, I'll go if I can go overland, right? Do the long way around. Obviously a lover of the classics, so I thought, oh, I'll get to see the ancient world sort of follow in the footsteps of Alexander. This would be great. Well, he never makes it, not surprisingly. <laughs> he, sort of, he sort of never quite makes it there. But he does hook up with the British consulate in the region and says, hey, you know, there's some interesting mounds over there towards Nineveh. How about I go poke around at him? And the guy says, hey, that'd be great. And he discovers the library of Ashurbanipal. This, this extraordinary, I mean, just amazing, larger than the library of Alexandria and predating it by, say, I don't know, 700 years, 800 years before Alexander even you know, was born. Massively predates the, the Library of Alexander, but in all historians agree this was, would have been much larger than even the, the most exaggerated claims for the size of the Library of Alexander. 
And what they find there is thousands, tens of thousands of cuneiform tablets. And if you look at the back there, there is an example of a cuneiform tablet. Most of them about the size of your hand. Scholars worked them like this. And so they were roughly the size of something you could hold in your hand. Many were much smaller, a few were much larger, most of them were the size of a notepad. They're sort of like the earliest iPhone, the size of your palm, right? And so they had a little stylus that they would poke in the clay. Um, so he, he's there, he's wandering around, he finds not a thousand, not five thousand, I mean, if I, I think it ends up being 65,000, 70,000 cuneiform tablets, which is an extraordinary, I mean, just, wow, huge, amazing riches. And of course, those are transported back to the British Museum, um, where they begin to be deciphered, translated, and they realize immediately, they go, oh, and some scholars have had a, a hint of this, that the original cuneiform text, the oldest ones that they had, go back to Babylon, hence the assumption that Babylon is, is the oldest civilization. But it became clear the more and more they translated the clearer it became that the, actually the cuneiform text and the Babylonian and Assyrian languages, which are actually different, we'll talk about that, had to be based on an even earlier language. And then they started finding tablets that related to this. They find, started finding stone inscriptions when they dug around more. More archaeological research tied into the tablets. And pretty soon, by about 1870 to 1890, they're going, wow. There was this entire civilization, big, not little, big civilization that predated anything we had ever heard of right around, um, well, there you say, where it says Sumer, not that far from Babylon. So it was amazing, again, the oldest text that we have, the Greek texts refer to Babylon. The Persians, who the Greeks had a lot to do with, of course, knew about Babylon, referred to it, wrote about it. And, of course, you have in the Old Testament, our other oldest texts, references to Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, and all this. So all the historical and archaeological record, they assume that, you know, about 2,000 years before, 2,000 BC, there was this civilization called Babylon, give or take. Well, it turns out that's about 1,500 years too late. There was, again, the earlier one that's Sumerian. This is the beginning of it all. As far as we know, of course, who knows? Again, there could be this other amazing discovery. But the archaeologists aren't going to hide it. They'll be like, wow, look what we found. That's why I like the conspiracy theories. It's sort of crazy. Because just what they want to happen has, in fact, happened. A lost civilization has been discovered. But they never talk about that. It always kind of blows me away. But if you look here, you can see the, um, the, the, the first column is like the sun in, in the oldest characters. This is the archaic, the earliest documents we have. That they says around 3000 B.C., now it's called cuneiform because it used a little, they used a little stylus. And on one side it had kind of a triangle shape, and the other side it had a point. And then by sticking it, these little wedges, in the clay, you could make all kinds of various figures. And all the figures you see here are made using that same instrument. And so you get cuneiform. Each of these symbols represents a syllable. Ma, ka, u, du, ru. So it's a, what's called a syllable, a syllabary. It's not an alphabet, it's a syllabary. But like an alphabet, you can write more than one language. French, German, and English are all written with the same alphabet. 
but they're different languages. Sumerian, Old Babylonian, Akkadian, different languages, the last two related, but all written with the same script. So there was the Sumerian civilization. We don't know why it ended. It's not clear. But what is clear is it developed the earliest known writing. The great thing about clay, writing in clay, is that clay lasts about two to three hundred years. So that's not so good in some ways, but when you compare it with papyrus or other, other kinds of technology, that's, that's really quite good. Ah, back to the Library of Nineveh. What happened with the Library of Nineveh is the library was sacked and burned. Ah, oh, so fire. Ah, fired the clay. <laughs> so this turns out to be like the greatest thing ever. Usually we think burning library is bad. In this case, burning library, excellent. <laughs> so that happened about 700 AD. The library was discovered around 1850, I mean 700 BC. The library was discovered about 1800 AD. So it laid underground, untouched, for 2,500 years. But when Rawls and friends start digging around, they pull it up, what do they find? Perfectly legible, completely intact, ready to go. Legible, of course, if you could read, which they couldn't, if you could read the, the cuneiform script. But it's, it's perfectly legible today. So Sumer covered this whole area. No, the no, there. Th- this Sumer. Uh, no, that was Assyria covered the whole area. Sumer would have covered a, a more around uh, where it says Sumer, Ur, Unk, Uma, and Lagash. That would have been more where Sumer was was ruling. So why were these cuneiform tablets that were written? No, no, that's right. It's a good question. So how do the how do the cuneiform tablets? Now these are not Sumerian cuneiform tablets. Because remember, so this is why the dates and times are so important here. The time between the rise and fall of Sumeria, around 3000 BC, and the fall of the library at Nineveh, which is sort of of the end of Assyrian dominance, at 700 BC, is 2,300 years. So longer from zero than from today. So there's a huge span of time. Even the clay tablets would not have lasted under normal circumstances anywhere near that long. But they began to be translated, and this is the key thing. When the Babylonians take over, they remember the Sumerians. Whether they conquered the Sumerians, they may or may not have. It's not entirely clear, but they knew them. They took the cuneiform writing from them, and they knew the stories, and they began to write them down. And so in this way, the mythological system of ancient Babylon was based, in large part, on their Sumerian predecessors. And then when the Assyrians came to dominate Babylonians, and all all kinds of battling going on, this goes back and forth for a couple thousand years, they kept translating, everybody kept translating everything they found that came before them. In fact, the stated purpose of the Library of Nineveh, this is the Library of Ashurbanipal, by the way, the ruler uh, at the time, uh, built by his father Israhan, Israhada, and his son Ashurbanipal, great names, Uh, hard hard to get those right, Uh, was to collect all of the ancient lore, not the contemporary material. I mean, there were records of what was going on at the time, They wanted to collect all of the ancient lore, specifically the lore of the most sort of refined literate script from ancient Babylon. 
And the most refined ancient script from ancient Babylon was based on maintaining the preceding lore, which was the epics of Samaria. The myths, the epics, the poems of Samaria. And so in this way, they were handed down generation to generation to generation to generation for 2,000 years. And now that they, when the archaeologists realized what they were looking for, they were able to go back and find stone carvings and other archaeological evidence of the civilization of Samaria. Those were then gone back and compared, and you go, aha, this is, this is true. There was, it's not a fantastical civilization that they're referring to. It's an actual civilization. There's now evidence, by the way, Gilgamesh will talk about at length, was an actual king, and in fact, we now have archaeological reference to his father. So the Gilgamesh of the epic, I mean, of course, not going to be, have done all these incredible things, but was, was probably a historic person at one point, who then became mythologized after his death. So that's the way this language was passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years. Scribes copying, annotating, developing, uh, elaborating. And then you can track it also in the development of the language. So if you look at the, the cuneiform from the earliest version of the sun to the late Babylonian, and Assyrian is even better, BC 700, that's about when the library fell, um, you can see, you know, those are pretty different. There was change in the way the cuneiform was used, but the fact that it was the single stylus used into the clay stayed the same, and it was a slow, slow, multi-thousand year evolution. Another way to think of it is, is Shakespeare... If you've tried to read Shakespeare and you've had a little difficulty, that, that's how much our language has changed in you know, a few hundred years. Now imagine the changes you're going to see in, in thousands. So here's how this works. So cuneiform, this is one of the amazing things that develop out of this. One, uh, not just here, but all the early languages that we have, the first thing people are doing is recording business transactions. Uh, this is, this is a, it's an accounting technology. This is where writing seems to develop. It's developed independently in several instances, but every time it's developed, it seems the earliest use that we have is basically for accounting purposes. Either uh, business transactions, or often because the, the early priests, basically tax collection was to the church or, or to your priests. And so the priests would take so much of a sacrifice. So you would bring a ram, and they would write down that you had given one ram. But this was really a way of taxation, because, of course, the, 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 the religious institution would take that. And, and the state, of course, the king, is headed by, it heads the religion. So you have this great passing of wealth from the people through the, through the church to the ruler. It's just a time of organized taxation. And so immediately, writing is involved with religion and business, and ruling. It's right there at the, at the nexus. And what happens, and you see this clearly in the record of the Sumerians, and then moving on even more clearly when we get lots more text from the Babylonians and the Assyrians, civilization grows, you're getting more people, expansion, ah! Aristocracy starts to grow. Non-priestly people start to be educated, and they want to learn to write, because think how much power that is. Who keeps the records? Who says which taxes have been paid? Well, once that happens, now you have a king who is the head of the church and the aristocracy. And their interests diverge almost immediately. And you see this in the development of the writing history. Because what are the priests going to write down once they stop just recording texts? What's the next thing they're going to write down, right? The myths. 
the religion, the stories. Well, it turns out that random aristocrats do not want to write down religious stories. They want to write down what people have always wanted to write down. Stories of their own, family histories, letters to their friends, poems, songs of praise, drinking songs. Right? The, and this is what we get immediately. That the writing system that develops within the context of business, record-keeping, and the church splits. And in that split, you get this huge tension between what regular people want to write down and, and what the religious scholars are writing down. But the religious scholars are the most educated people, and so often they're working for the aristocrats, and the aristocrats learn to write. And this goes back and forth, and so it's a, a mixing and a battle, right? And this, this, you'll see this over and over again as we go through the history of this. When you have very few literate people, it's incredibly powerful to be literate. If it's incredibly powerful to be something, the wealthy and powerful want that. And so this, this battle ensues between who controls what. But almost immediately, as, basically as early as we get records, you get religious myths, songs, poems, drinking songs, pornography, uh, complaints about the king, letters to friends and lovers. It all develops apparently immediately. As soon as you get literacy, this is what you get. It's, it's quite extraordinary, and I'll give you a lot of examples as we, as we go forward. But right there in the inception are all these tensions that will play out over and over again that we'll see between who's literate and what you're allowed to use literacy for. Another excellent example is in Old Babylonian, it may also have been true in Sumerian, but certainly in Old Babylonian, there was a separate endings and tenses for things written by women. What this meant was there were a collection, a large collection of literate women. So it suggests rather strongly that women were very powerful. And much of the best early writing that we have was written by women. We know this because they had their own sort of endings and tenses that let you know, oh, this is, this is women's writing. And they wrote, wrote many great poems and, and, and a few, few very fascinating epics. And it tends to be some of the best that we have. We'll see this again when you look at the development of, of Japanese, where the best early Japanese writing is all by women, um, because they were sort of breaking off from the dominance of the Chinese script. So it's this fascinating continual battle between you know, political power, religious power, monetary power, you know, the battle of the sexes, and who gets to control literacy and how they get to use it. See, it's right there in the inception. You see it immediately. Was it reflected in their religion? Uh, yeah, hard to say. The, the structure of religion is, is what it means from the outside is very difficult to say even when you have the texts. One of, one of the great examples of this, I was going to mention this later, but it's a good question, we'll mention it now. Um, one of the great things about getting these texts is it allows us to see something of the lives and the minds of the people. And it's remarkable how consistent that's been over, over these texts are now 5,000 years old, 4,000, 3,000 years old. The flip side is that you have to always be careful because imagine some alien species comes down 
you know, 3,000 years from now, they're doing archaeology and they, and they dig up uh, uh, the Gospels and they say, oh, well, this guy keeps talking about love and kindness. And so, wow, that must have been a great friendly religion where everybody loved everybody. <laughs> and there were never any crusades or inquisitions or, right? See how uh, it's so difficult, you know, so, so on one hand, it is great that we have them and it, there's lots that we can learn from it. On the other hand, it's always... You've got to be careful, right? You always, always have to be careful about reading too much into the texts. Because, again, of, of the, of the, when fo so few people are literate, anything that's written down carries great weight and it is of, of great significance. So, end result of this, all of this archaeology and careful study, and I, I would really love to go into detail, but... Basically, let me just summarize and say, for over a hundred years, some of the finest philological and archaeological minds in the world struggled with trying to organize, translate, collate all of these sources. And, and they've done a remarkable job. It's one of the great gifts. When you study these languages, one of the things you realize, part of our cultural heritage is the fact that we've inherited life after life worth of labor, intellectual effort, to reconstruct for us the text that we can now access. It's one of the most amazing gifts that we receive. I mean, and truly remarkable, brilliant people spending you know, thousands of thousands, years, years and years of their lives to provide us uh, with access to the information. So the, so the library is discovered. It opens up this huge chapter. Significant point number one, it lets us know that even before all the texts we had, there was another civilization. So the lost civilization thing may not be as crazy as people think, right? But you, you have to have the evidence. And if you have the evidence, let me assure you, the archaeologists aren't going to be the one hiding it. They're going to be the one celebrating it, because what, what, what a wonderful thing that is to discover. And as we go into these texts, we discover any number of amazing things. One is we get the, the laws of Hammurabi, which had, which had been around, but we get the earlier sources for this. And what you discover is from as soon as you get legal codes, you have lawyers. It's, 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 it's just great. So you pick up a legal code from, you know, 3,000 years ago. And it says, if a man steals your sheep, he has to give you a sheep back or we'll put him to death. Unless there are no witnesses. <laughs> if there are no witnesses and a man steals your sheep, then two of your friends can testify that they can identify the sheep. Unless the man bring a witness to say that the sheep... And then, you know, you're just like, oh, gosh, this is exactly what the, the law codes have not changed. People haven't changed, so why should law codes change? But it's just this series of exceptions and if-thens and so on. Uh, and one of the great ones that you run in very quickly, again, a resonance you'll recognize, is they say... If someone is going to testify in what is essentially a capital case, a major case, as a witness, and the defendant doubts them, they can run and jump in the Euphrates. If they don't drown, then they are correct. And they're, they're, their testimony is true. If they do drown, then of course they're lying and their testimony is not taken into account in court. Which is hilarious, right? This is, this is just the whole, you know, witch is drowning in sleep. But apparently God favors the good swimmers. Uh, this is sort of the, 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 the rule that you get from this idea. Um, but but what, remarkable, if you go through and read the law codes of Hammurabi, there's even earlier ones. What you will recognize immediately 
uh, is this just wow? It's it's ex every same crime, you know, adultery. If a man's wife sleep with another man and there be no witnesses, he has to take her back. If a man's wife sleep with another and there are witnesses, then he can kill her. If a man, you know, and it just goes on and on and on, and all kinds of things about what you do with orphans, which is emblematic of the times that they lived in when when, when orphans might be more common. And how you, you take care of them, and who's responsible for them, and, and who can have them, and who can't have them. All kinds of marriage laws about, you know, if a man marries a woman and never sleeps with her, and then decides he doesn't want to marry her, well, then she can go to her father's house, but has to return half the dowry, and the other half goes to the church. And it just goes on and on. Uh, you got a lot of laws about, um, they had temple prostitution, or, or temple concubines. And this was an honorable profession. And so lots of people would give their daughters to the temple, and you would give your daughter and her marriage dowry to the temple. And then she would serve for so long, and then when she left the temple, she could get her marriage dowry back and marry, and everything was fine. So there's all, you know, various laws. But what's most telling is that it reads just like any law code you've ever read. Exceptions, challenges, counterexamples, and you can just feel all of the problems they were dealing with. And you could hear the exasperated judge going, oh, Okay, get the scribe over here, law number 782. <laughs> really, you guys? You know, I just, you gotta, you gotta fix that, you know? Exceptions, counter exceptions, counter rules. So one, the legal codes, and the legal codes also had the uh, things that we've struggled with. Should you find people? This actually alters over time. Sometimes they were very much into the behead them, cut their hands off, flog them, beat them, kill them. And then sometimes this would alternate with, no, let's find them. We don't want to kill. You, and you can see this vacillation between sort of, you know, corporal punishment, extreme punishment, and like, oh, that's sort of cruel. We'll do, we'll do more fines and taxes and taking their material goods, but we really don't want to, we don't want to hurt people. And, and it's amazing to see this, this, no, this debate that's still going on today. You can see in the various iterations of the law codes as you cover this, you know, 2,000 year period. It's quite extraordinary. Again, adultery is a good example. Sometimes you could kill your wife for adultery. Uh, sometimes you just had to pay a fine. Uh, and sometimes you just would give her back to her family and, and return the marriage dowry. So it was a way of saying, well, this isn't working out. Right? This, isn't, this isn't working well, so there we go. And, and some, in some of the codes, if a man is, is caught, it's equal punishment. In some of the codes, it's wildly unequal, right? Uh, and so there's you know, all kinds of vacillations and things you might be able to read in, in history that way. Um, second, you have, again, if you look at the chart here and, and you look at the region, you can see that Jerusalem um, is in there. And this is where all the epics of Babylon come to us from. The Old Testament comes in large part by people who experienced the Babylonian captivity, which means that, of course, they were in Babylonia, where they would have been exposed to the cuneiform civilizations the one that they knew, Babylon, and also the Sumerian civilization they weren't familiar with, that underwrote it. What's fascinating about this is when the Babylonian captivity ended, and, and, and an enlightened ruler said, hey, you guys can go back and you can rebuild the temple. Almost all of the Jewish population said, oh, no, that's okay. No, 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 no. No, we don't want to go back. Because it's so great here. That's like, who wants to go out in the woods, out in the sticks, out back to, to Jerusalem? Nothing's going on there. We're here. We're in the capital of the empire. Life is beautiful. 
it's polyglot. It's, you know, we're at the big city. We don't want to go back to the sticks. So it was this interesting, uh, the, the history of that is pretty clear that, that the vast majority of them decided to stay. Another aspect around this time that happens is, again, the Sumerian language was non-Semitic language. We don't know the origins of the people, and we don't know where the language came from, because it's so old. The Babylonian language is a Semitic language. It's one of the earliest, of course, obvious earliest Semitic languages. And, and what this means is that from about, say, oh, say 22,000 BC, rough dates, probably earlier than that, in Babylon, which is more or less contiguous with modern Baghdad, but it's right there, um, wow, the heater's on. Uh, can you turn the heater off, please? Do that, Larry? Thanks. Uh, contiguous with modern Baghdad, right now, the Prime Minister of, of, of Iraq, who is section, stationed in Baghdad, speaks a daughter tongue of the same Semitic language. It's for 4,000, it's got to be over 4,000 years. It's the same language that slowly changed, altered, and morphed. But many of the words are borrowed, many of the structures are borrowed, and it's recognizably a Semitic language. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of an, of an equivalent. Hey, we don't, I mean, it would be as if, I don't know, if the United States lasts for another, say, 2,000 years, English is probably going to change quite a bit. And Jefferson might not be able to speak with the president or Washington or the president of the United States in 2,000 years. But if they sat down and spoke together for a while and tried to work things out, they would begin to recognize, oh, we have that word in common. Oh, our languages really aren't that different. And if they had a trained linguist with them, he would say almost, or she would say almost immediately, oh, well, these are very similar. <laughs> Look, you're in the same language tree. No problem. We can work this out. So one of the influences you see is simply the, the continuous rule of Semitic languages in this region for 4,000 plus years, which is, which is astounding. This is not duplicated pretty much anywhere except for China, uh, where the language, of course, is, is still the same. So it's a remarkable just achievement on the political front, again, from the influence. The big epic, though, the big piece of literature that's handed down to us from this period is the Epic of Gilgamesh. If you haven't read the Epic of Gilgamesh, I recommend it. It's short, it's pithy, it's lots of fun, lots of action, um, but it's truly astounding. Uh, it's built from a whole number of texts and sources because the Epic of Gilgamesh was sort of the best seller for you know, a couple of thousand years. And so we have, we have bits and pieces of it from all over the place, and the scholars have assembled the final and complete text. What's so incredible about this is over again, we're reaching back 4,000, 5,000 years, and what you hear is the voice of man today. It's, it's quite extraordinary. The problems that Gilgamesh faces are the problems that we face. The way he responds, his emotions, recognizable, they resonate over this gap of 4,000 years. And this is, this is just because think there's no reason that should be necessarily so. Their civilization could have been so alien to ours, their ideas, their assumptions, their experiences, so odd, that we, you know, we would read it, it would be weird and strange, and there'd be no way to connect with it. But it turns out to be precisely the opposite. And that, I want to spend a little time talking about the, the epic, because so much is so familiar and so powerful, again, considering this is the first epic that you get, the great cuneiform epic. 
Um, so, so here's Gilgamesh. Here's how it starts, more or less. Gilgamesh is wandering around, sleeping with everybody's wives, and killing everybody because he's bored. And so they go, hey, the gods, could you help us out here? Gilgamesh, he's, he's sort of creating havoc. He needs a friend. He needs a pal. He needs a buddy. And so they create his friend in Kendu out in the woods. He's, he's a wild man, all covered in hair. He's, he's like, and they say, well, we have to get Enkindu out of the woods and hook him up with Gilgamesh. How do you do that? How do you go from being wild and in nature to being civilized, essentially? Great story. One, you get him to wash. You clean him. You give him fine food, cooked food, processed foods, breads, meals, good stuff. And you hook him up with a prostitute. <laughs> These are the joys of civilization. <laughs> and so they send this, this temple prostitute. I mean, prostitute, we really don't have an equivalent word because it was not a term of derision. She's a temple prostitution. prostitute. She would be like the head of the temple. She would be a priestess. Um, but, th but this was part of their, their religious structure. So again, it didn't have the connotation of prostitute. But, but you, know, you were paying for sexual favors through the medians of the gods. So it was a sort of interesting situation. But they send her out. And then Kendu sees her and says, well, hey, that looks all right. And he goes over and she feeds him and washes him with perfume and oils him. They have sex. They spend time together. They talk. And then Kendu goes, well, that was great, but I've got to go back to the woods now. Ah, the animals will not take him back. He's become civilized. And it's one of the early stories that we have. This will be repeated over and over and over again. One of the early stories that there's this line, right? What does it mean to be civilized? Clothes, cleanliness, beautiful women, perfume, conversation, food. That once you cross it, you can never go back. You lose that existence out there. You can't be a wild man anymore. Of course, this, we have this narrative now all the time. Right? We're so concerned about the aboriginal peoples who are going to spoil. If they contact civilization, they'll be ruined. They'll be spoiled. And now we're very nervous about that. Um, but this nervousness, this question, goes all the way back. The earliest text that we have, one of the things they talk about is this problem. Then, of course, civilization was small. Wildness was big. Now we've converted that civilization big, little if any wildness like that left. But it was right there in the inception. And then they have lots of adventures. And Kendu and Gilgamesh become very good friends. They have lots of adventures. But the key element of the narrative, or one of the key elements of the narrative, is that Enkindu eventually dies. And this drives Gilgamesh wild. Why does he have to die? Second big theme, or another big theme, is mortality. Right here in the beginning, earliest text that we have, major text, mortality. Why? This is horrible. Why can't he live? I want him back. I'm lonely without him. And so he goes on this big trip to try and find a way of not dying and of bringing Kindu back, A or B, most best would be both. And of course, we know what the outcome of this trip is. It's the same as the outcome of this trip is through all of mythology. You can't. Man is mortal. 
And so right here in the early inception, you get you know, loneliness, friendship, love, civilization, the wildness, the longing not to die, but the necessity, the inevitability of it. These themes, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, right there, they're there, written out, beautifully written out, wonderful poetry. And it sends down to us these stories. This is one of the things, and we'll talk about this, one of the things that makes us different from other civilizations that are not in this line. Notice our civilization begins here. This is, this is the, 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 the well from which we draw our inspiration. When the Greeks and the Hebrews are writing about Babylon, they don't know it, but they're also writing about Sumeria. When their myths are being formed, their myths are being influenced by the myths that came before them. For instance, there's a little passage, and how many people have read the Epic of Gilgamesh? A couple of people. And you read it, you read, you read this remarkable passage, where you probably haven't heard this if you haven't read it, but you know, from three or 4,000 years ago, how much could come down to us? Anyway, this bizarre passage where Gilgamesh, trying to live forever, goes and talks to a guy, Umpantisham. I think that's how you say that name. A crazy name, but, but something like that. And he says, well, tell me about the world. And he says, well, you know, a long time ago, people were making a lot of noise. And this upset the gods immensely. So the gods said, we're going to kill them all in a flood. And one of the gods took pity on human beings and thought it was wrong to kill them because they were their own creation. So he went to one who was a particularly good and just man and said, build a boat. <laughs> and take onto that boat all living things with you because a great flood is coming. See, isn't that crazy? You've never heard this before, have you? So, wait, you have heard this. Yes, of course you have. And he goes out in this boat on the flood for so many days and so many nights and then when it stops raining finally, he sends out a bird. And that bird does not return. And he says, oh, no, right, so this, right, the, 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 and then, you know, he finds land. And then at the end of it, the gods relent. They say, feel bad. They're like, well, we shouldn't have killed everybody. So we'll make a rainbow as a sign of a promise that we'll never do this again. We're never going to flood man out and kill them all because it makes a lot of noise. That's really the best part of it. It's not that they were sinning. It was like they were noisy. I just like that. Because like, it's true, right? We're, we're a noisy creature. You know? we, don't think we kill them all because they're bothering our sleep. Now, now, this myth predates the Old Testament myth by at least a thousand years. It's really a lot longer than that, but it's really easy to say for a thousand years, which is a long time. And yet it's come down to us I mean, this is a story from 4,000, even longer ago, that has come down, that everybody knows. Think how strange, because one, what a weird story this is. I mean, really, it's just, that's just the strangest story anybody ever came up with. And, and, and yet, somehow, it's been told continuously for at least 4,000 years. This is an extraordinary continuity. Of, of cultural influence. And so this, this has come down to us. People still talk about the flood. Also note that if you're living on the banks of the Tigris and the Euphrates, it was much wetter then, by the way. That region had a lot more water back in the day. The, the, the story of a great flood that wipes everybody out has a very much greater ring of truth than if you're over in the desert around Jerusalem. 
I mean, that's going to have to be a very strange flood. Uh, but if you're on the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates and you've got an irrigation system, which of course they would have had, and there's a major flood event, yeah, you're all going to die because it's going to destroy your irrigation system and your crops simultaneously, at which point your civilization just ended and you all die. You got to spread out. And all the people who spread out would have remembered, oh, great-great-great-grandpa told us how everybody but he and a few other people died in this huge flood. And before you know it, you have this flood narrative. But it's just, just remarkable continuity. You have other tales that have come down to see if this one sounds familiar to you. Um, back in the day, men used to live for a really, really long time. They pretty much didn't die and they didn't suffer from disease. But they said, hey, there's this tree <laughs> that has this knowledge fruit on it. Yeah, there's, there's several versions of this. My favorite involves a character called Tug Tug, just because I like the name Tug Tug, uh, and who, who, who occurs in, in various guises, where the, the, the knowledge, the fruit of knowledge and or the fruit of eternal life is available to man. But he loses his opportunity to have it and is therefore kicked out of paradise. It's, it's no longer there. <clears throat> And so again, you have this, this, this continuous narrative idea that has come down to us. That there was a time when we lived in a golden age when, when you didn't have to work. When we walked with the gods. This is one of the key things about the early Sumerian myths in, in particular. We used to walk and talk with the gods. Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And now we don't. Why don't we anymore? Well, there was this break. We were more or less evicted from the Garden of Eden. It also helps explain some weird things in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with it. Uh, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, um, two sons of Adam and Eve, and, and they both make sacrifices to God. And Abel sacrifices, um, I think, a lamb. But it's, 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 it's game. It's a creature. And Cain sacrifices wheat crops. And God says, wow, I really like Abel's sacrifice, and eh, so much for Cain. And this pisses Cain off, so he kills Abel. Well, scholars have pondered this for a long time, but one thing that's clear is, is the, the Semitic people of the Old Testament were nomadic herds people, which is to say animal sacrifice is good. Most, pretty much all of the myths that come down to us from the Sumerian, Assyrian, Babylonian tradition are agricultural based. It's the agriculture. So you, you, you don't sacrifice animals. I mean, they had some animals. But it was grain. It's, it's, it's the grains that were the staff of life. And so in their myths, the sacrifices that are, are all about grain and, 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 and the crops like that, that you could grow. Fruits. And so one potential reading of this, as scholars have discussed, is the fact that this could be a collision between the nomadic tradition and the tradition that's remembered from Babylon, from the Sumerian myth systems and clearly this nomadic people are going to say you know, the meat sacrifice good, the grain sacrifice, and who cares? Our God likes you know, meat better. And that this could be again a resonance from the fact that here you are sitting trying to write up your, your, your religious system and you've got these two sort of almost irreconcilable traditions. Also when uh, Moses comes down from the mountain 
don't know if people remember this. He, he's gone up and he's talked to God. He's got the commandments, of which there are not ten, by the way. Uh, uh, he's got the commandments. And one of the commandments is make no graven images. And what does he do? He makes a snake on a stick <laughs> to help guide him through the forest or through the, through the desert there. This is, this is the far-seeing snake that comes to us from Tammuz and, and other sources from, from Babylon and Assyria. The Babylonians and the Assyrians would have recognized that immediately. Oh, we know who that is. We know what's going on there. Yeah, so all these strange resonances keep, keep coming to us um, from, again, several thousand years ago. Perhaps the most remarkable one, though, again, this is back from the Epic of Gilgamesh, although similar things occur in other myth systems. Um, Gilgamesh is, is early on when he's really upset about Enkindu's death. Goddess comes to him and says, you know, why are you filled with such woe? And, he, and it's a long speech, but basically he says, well, because Enkindu's died. Shouldn't, shouldn't I be filled with woe? And she says, no, that's the lot of man. This is what happens to man. You should wash yourself, dress yourself in clean clothes, sing, dance, and be merry all your days, eat good food, hold the hand of your children, hold your wife to your bosom, for these joys are also the lot of man. Four thousand five hundred years ago, these joys also, yes, you are going to die, but these joys also are the lot of man. <clears throat> and when Gilgamesh gets back to his city, he looks around, and this is what he says. He says, this is a good city. These are good bricks, well-made, fired bricks, good bricks. A third of it is city within the walls. A third of it is garden. A third of it is open fields for the temple of Ishtar, our goddess. Let's make our home here. Let's make it beautiful. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's, let's grow the blessings of the soil. Let's build the human community. And it sets this model of the ideal of civilization that we are still working on, again, 4,000 years later. What is the good life? Eat, drink, and be merry, right? I mean, sort of, this, this is one of the versions of it. How should your cities be built? If we're going to live in cities, make them beautiful. I, I love this idea. I think this is exactly how we should build cities, by the way. I think, I think they had it right. One-third buildings, one-third gardens, and then one-third open land. Doesn't that just seem like the right way to do it? This is the city planning from 5,000 years ago. Wow, where, I don't know where we've gone wrong. <laughs> but the contrast was, no, don't go out in the wilderness, in the wilds. That's not where man belongs. That's not where civilization is. It, it's, it's here, it's with your family, it's with your community. Eat, drink, and be merry all your days. For this too is the lot of man. It's an incredible message. Um, that, again, comes down to us from 5,000 years. So these influences and, and, and resonances stay with us more than, it, than it, sometimes than it seems possible. Various myths about 
dying and coming back. To, have you ever heard of a god that dies and comes back to life? <laughs> oh, you have heard of Enlil and Ishtar. Oh, wait, there's a different one? Again, but notice what, you know, this notion of even the gods being subject to the worst that befalls man. This is a powerful, very human idea, apparently, because, again, we get it from so early on, and then it comes down to us. So the archaeological record here is, is, in the last hundred years, has become a thousand times richer than it was because of the discovery at Nineveh and other places now. They're very, hugely important. In fact, in the Persian Gulf War, the last invasion of Iraq, when the library, or the library, the museum in, in Baghdad was looted, people, people knew. This, is, this was an unbelievable tragedy. I mean, so many pieces of the antiquity of, of, of this were lost to us, spread out, irreplaceable. But the, but the good side is we know there's a lot more out there. New finds are being discovered all the time. And you know, basically, there's a backlog. If, if, if more opportunity, more money, more students trained to do it, there would be a lot more of this stuff dug up and translated. So we know there's more there. They're finding more all the time. But even with what we have, the riches that we have, we've been able to reconstruct a pretty good history over those 3,000-year span. And what the history tells us is that the civilization then, not as different as you might think, the people then very much more like us. The stories that they told are in sometimes exactly the stories that we still tell. And sometimes you recognize the resonances perfectly clearly, amazingly clearly. But probably, and, and, and most importantly, I think, is that the humans then are us. We're them. Again, when you read through Gilgamesh and his struggles and his problems, you just get at times you just go, yes, you know, I've felt this way. And so we have this amazing discovery of a civilization that we had lost that goes back, it set the history of man back again about 1,300 years further than it had ever been thought to have existed. And with that find, we just found that, hey, it's just us further back in time. <laughs> The same problems, the same thoughts, the same struggles, and in some cases, you know, very similar responses. You get, there's tablets that they have, you know, little fragments of them. One of my favorite ones, it says, it's a sayings, aphorisms. And one of them is, to be sick is okay, to be pregnant is okay, to be sick and pregnant is too much. <laughs> right? And I just, I just think that there it is, you know? I think, it's, I think that's a 3,700-year-old tablet, right? Just, you know, it's just, some poor woman is going, oh, really? Crap, come on. That's just not fair. That, 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 just, that just seems wonderful. Not wonderful for her, but wonderful to me. There's also, the, we have what, what looks to be the, the oldest your mama joke, <laughs> right? Where someone says, yeah, well, your mama is ugly like a sheep. It's like, well, we're already insulting people's mothers, you know, thousands of years ago. And so the cultivated human richness of our tradition goes back, like I said, you know, 5,000 years in unbelievable wealth. And that if you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, which again, I highly recommend because it's short and fascinating, it resonates. In fact, it resonates away in a way that I think it would be interesting when we move on to the hieroglyphic tradition 
When we move on to Sanskrit, when we move on to Chinese, it's not the same. Because those civilizations have not penetrated our own as strongly. Egyptian hieroglyphics to a certain extent, Sanskrit, Chinese, not at all. And so the alienness is greater, which is, which is fascinating to me. That, that when you read them, you go, oh, this is just very much stranger. But I, I, I would argue that it's the continuity of our tradition, unbroken stories that have been told for 5,000 years, that makes it seem so much more similar than what we'll see when we get to the next languages. And again, I, I leave you with, like, 4,000 years ago, roughly the great piece of wish, wisdom, dress well, eat well, <laughs> be merry, sing all the days of your lives, love your children, hold your spouse to your bosom, because these two are the lot of man. Thank you very much.